In this episode of Right Angle, what happened to Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, or how government makes everything better. Hi, I'm Scott Ott with Bill Whittle and Stephen Green. And this episode of Right Angle is brought to you, as all the others, by the members at BillWhittle.com. Gentlemen, I'd just like to break down a couple of segments in the drama that was uh, happening over the weekend or we became aware of over the weekend regarding Silicon Valley Bank and then Signature Bank and uh, and the role at various stages that government played in it and just get your reaction. And we can make this a little bit more loose and freewheeling than we normally do rather okay. than me posing questions to each of you if we wanna kind of jump in and deal with this. Uh, but I've kind of broken this thing down into phases from uh, readings in various places, including the Wall Street Journal, um, about what happened here. Um, and so, for those of you who are financial wizards or banking experts, uh, this is your opportunity to hit the stop button and go to some other video where somebody's going to impress you with their knowledge. <laughs> this is more an every man's layman kind of, of read on this thing. So uh, first of all, during the COVID-19 pandemic and the shutdowns of all kinds of things, um, tech companies did very well and deposits uh, surged in Silicon Valley Bank with an incredible boost in deposits. So I'm not gonna get into particular figures on this. Um, so really government plays a role here in what they did uh, by having mandates or guidelines that suggested that companies shut down their operations. Therefore, tech companies boom because people were spending more time at home. Therefore, this bank that focuses on tech companies gets a surge in deposits. Um, in 2018, uh, the President Trump signed some legislation uh, to loosen, loosen regulations on smaller banks uh, because it was thought that they should only really apply to larger banks. And it was some legislation that had passed in the after the, the great meltdown that followed the Lehman Brothers uh, crisis back in 2008. Now, lest you leap to the assumption that President Trump is to blame for this, uh, my understanding is signing legislation is not an executive order, and also that uh, former uh, bank, I believe he was the chairman of the banking committee, was uh, Representative Barney Frank, uh, who after retirement from the House became a member of the board of Signature Bank. Yeah, and let me let me jump been, in here with that. I, go ahead. Yeah, I wrote about this yesterday for PJ Media. So Barney Frank was the guy who uh, was defending all of the stuff that caused the 2000, 2007, 2008 meltdown. If 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 you brought up any of the risks that was that were getting baked in to these credit default swaps, uh, you got accused of racism, homophobia, whatever, whatever whatever mud he could fling at you, he flung at you. And when the whole thing collapsed, he got his name on the legislation that was supposed to fix it. So you'll excuse yeah. me if I don't think the yeah, Dodd-Frank was good. All, he was all into the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac thing too, wasn't he? I mean, he was... Yeah. 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 And then, so, then he goes oh, as, sorry, with yeah. the revolving door as normal. He, You know, congressmen do this. Um, he uh, Since 2015, I think it said he had earned some $2.6 million. Um, that number may be slightly off, but in that neighborhood of $2.6 million from his service on the board of directors at, uh, at Signature Bank. Um, so uh, during, as we well know, in an effort to fight inflation, the Federal Reserve has been uh, essentially hiking the interest rate in, uh, in the last year or two. And as a result of that, Silicon Valley Bank had invested heavily in bonds, and I'm not going to pretend to understand how the whole bond market works, but essentially the action of the Fed to increase interest rates decreased the value of the bonds, and that would have been fine if 
they didn't have to sell the bonds because as long as you're holding bonds, they're technically counted for at face value. But the moment you sell them, then they are accounted for at the actual value of the sale. So if you sell them before they mature, then you take a loss. And um, during 2022, depositors had begun withdrawing money at greater levels than they were uh, depositing money at Silicon Valley Bank. And it was getting to the point where Silicon Valley Bank realized we're going to have to sell these bonds in order to cover the losses that we're taking because people are pulling their money out of it. Now, to put a little bit of glaze on this, KPMG, the accounting firm, did an audit of both of these banks, Silicon Valley Bank and um, Signature Bank, and at the end of 2022, and basically gave them a clean bill of health. A-OK, -okay. good job. <laughs> um, they should have, uh, be, they're arguing, KPMG is, is arguing at this point that, well, as of the end of 2022, everything was OK, but they were so, supposed to also be doing a forward-looking report. So they were supposed to be looking at trends and saying, if current trends continue, you're going to have trouble. And the information about the deepening crisis at Silicon Valley Bank was available to KPMG before they published their audit. And so they should have had this information and it should have been out there. Um, audits, heavily regulated by the government. How you do an audit, the information you have to report, how you can report it and still be considered to be within the regulations. Also an intervention on the part of the government. And then finally, um, Joe Biden's response, which we'll talk about more specifically uh, about his announcement of his response um, in Steve Green's episode of Right Angle this week, but using FDIC insurance money that is contributed by banks. And really, when you say contributed by banks, it means that they're taking some of the investors' money and putting it into this F FDIC insurance. Um, they took some of that money and they said, look, we're going to cover all the depositors in these two banks and we're not going to cap it at 250000 because these are business banks and and that very few people have that little money in there and they're going to cover their full deposits. So in one day, there was a run on the bank last week and, and depositors tried to withdraw some $42 billion worth of money. Um, the FDIC stepped in and they say, uh, some people say, well, you're saying they bailed out the bank? We don't want to call it a bailout. No, they took it over. They took it. This is this is It's a Wonderful Life. This is, you know, Jimmy uh, Stewart saying Potter's not selling, he's buying. <laughs> so the government took over the banks and uh, said they were going to make everybody whole. And they said no taxpayers money will be used no, in this so. because you're using FDIC insurance money. Well, the FDIC insurance fund is at about one hundred billion dollars. SVB Bank, or SVB, the uh, the Silicon Valley Bank alone had some $42 billion of attempted withdrawals in a single day. Uh, the, the word on the street is now there's not a whole lot of money left in the FDIC insurance fund. So yeah. if there's any domino effect of all of this, then that's going to be trouble. Okay, so... What I, what I noticed here, Stephen Green, is all along the line government is involved in some way. And it just made me wonder, would it be possible to dream of a world where you didn't have, for example, the Federal uh, Reserve trying to manipulate interest rates so that somebody's safe investment in government bonds suddenly became a risky investment um, and a government stepping in and saying, don't worry, we'll bail you all out without thinking, oh, wait a minute, these are two banks. How many banks are there in the country? Is it just crazy to think at this point we could go to a more hands-off uh, 
approach to the the banking system? Uh, we we might end up there whether we whether we as a nation want to or not. Uh, three words though uh, before I go go on. End the Fed. Um, the Fed is just a terrible, awful institution. It, it, it was established uh, 110 years ago now, 111 years, whatever it's been, uh, with one job to protect the value of the U.S. dollar. And the U.S. dollar through the uh, uh, 17 and 1800s, you know, it did this. It, 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 it Sometimes there was inflation, sometimes there was deflation, but it was pretty it held its value pretty well. And then uh, uh, since the Fed was established, the dollar's lost something like 98% of its value. It's just, it's nuts. And the worst part about central banking with a fiat currency is since uh, it, it, it took it took about 60 years for us to finally completely abandon the gold standard, which Nixon, uh, may he not rest in peace, finally finally did to us yep. in, the, in the early 70s. And that took the reins off of spending. And it took Congress a while to really figure out that they could do whatever they want. But uh, what what really keyed him in was the Obama, Obama stimulus in early 2009. No, we're just going to conjure up a trillion dollars and nobody can say anything. The Fed's just going to print it up to, uh, to cover whatever it is. And that's how we got into these multiple $2 trillion stimuli uh, recovery, whatever packages during the the unnecessary pandemic lockdowns. So when you have a central bank with the ability to create currency at will, it allows uh, it, it allows bad behavior in the in the private sector because you've got, you know, privatized profits and socialized risk where That's it. we all pay for everybody's mistakes. But the real danger, the, the the real systemic danger is the one in the public sector where Congress and the White House realize that there is no limit to what they can spend what they can conjure up the 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 federal monetize whatever amount of debt it is and that's how we went from uh, a, a very sustainable debt although still too much in uh, for for my taste just uh, just uh, 22 years ago to 31 32 trillion dollars in debt now with no end in sight we've got trillion dollar plus deficits as far as the eye can see scott and as uh uh oh i just forgot his name i think it's stein's law uh, uh says anything that cannot go on forever will stop and what the fed is doing cannot go on forever Bill Whittle, it seems to me that I'm sure uh, left to their own devices, uh, the the executives at Silicon Valley Bank would have made some stupid decisions, as they seem to have done. Uh, but it's kind of an unusual sort of stupid decision. I mean, in the 2008 meltdown with the mortgage-backed securities and these really, you know, exotic forms of financing that were based on bets, debt obligations, on bets, yes. on somebody else's, yeah. yeah, collateralized debt obligation, all that kind of stuff. This is a bank that decided to sink a great deal of money in what used to be considered a sure thing. <laughs> and by the by the actions of the Federal Reserve, which some could argue is not part of the government, but it's hand in glove with the government, um, th that wound up not being a sure thing. And then you had the actions of the government with regard to businesses being shut down and 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 the the surge in demand that that produced for some technology companies and things like that. Um, we can't wind back the clock, Bill, and just sitting here and wagging our finger at politicians and saying, you know, we told you so isn't going to do anything. Is there any appropriate 
uh, approach going forward, especially for Republicans who'd like to retake the Congress and the White House, to be able to say, look, here's what sensible management will mean in the future. Yes, but until until you understand what the root causes of the problems are, you'll just be tailoring band-aids to solve specific issues like this, like the Silicon Valley Bank, right? There are yeah. two or three enormous systemic fundamental problems here. So let's just take a couple of them. One of them is when the stock market becomes so complex that virtually everybody who is buying stock buys stock through a broker. What that means is the people who are making the financial decisions with where the money goes are making decisions about money that's not their money. This whole idea of collateralized debt obligations and bundling all the mortgage debts and so on and selling them off to somebody else and all the rest of it, that is that decision is made by by uh, by financial professionals, but it's not their money. It's it's other people's money. And and so since they don't have any responsibility, they will take all kinds of risks. If if it was their money, if if it turned out that these that these um, you know junk bonds earlier than that or collateralized debt obligations of the housing crisis, if it turned out that getting these things wrong eliminated the complete net worth of the broker, you wouldn't be making these risky kind of decisions because it's other people's money. The worst that'll happen to them is they won't get rich, but they won't but they won't pay for this. So. The first part of the problem is, is that the people who are making these so-called financial instruments do not have their own skin in the game, which means they can be as, as cavalier as they want to be. Most of the time, they'll get rich off of it. And if it fails catastrophically, it's other people's money that's gone. It's not their money, right? All the mortgages and all the rest of it, it's not their money. That's, that's a big part of it. The second and more important part of it is, is that for quite a long time, now I can't tell you exactly when it happened, but money isn't money anymore in the way that we understand money. And part of this is this idea of fiat currency. So for example, I don't know, I was surprised to know this. If somebody were to take out a mortgage for $500,000 to buy a house, we would think, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned It's a Wonderful Life, you would think that you would go down to the Bailey Savings and Loan and say, I'd like to buy a house, please. And, and they say, how much is the house? And you say five, well, in that case, you probably say $5,000, but $500,000, yeah. right? And then the people that own the bank would have to take a very close look at you to determine whether or not you were likely to be able to pay this loan back. Because in, when money was money, that meant that the Bailey Savings Loan would have to withdraw $500,000, pay it to the person who owns the house, and then you would get to live in the house and you would repay all of the money that they took out to buy the house plus interest. If you're a reliable person, the bank makes money on this. They make the interest. And that makes sense. And, and, and that's why banks have to be careful about who they lend to. But when you, when you buy a house today, if you, if you take out a mortgage for $500,000 with Bank of America, let's say, that money's not withdrawn from Bank of America. Bank of America doesn't go down $500,000 in their total balance sheet. $500,000 of money is created out of thin air. That's what fiat means. It means essentially means let it exist, let it be. It's created. You've just added $500,000 to the to the dollar amount in circulation and the bank is not out any money. Now, when if you're talking about the government involvement, Scott, the thing that led to the housing crisis was, in a short, the short form was, political pressure said, 
that that there are unfair lending practices and essentially everyone should be able to own their own home. And so in a nutshell, what essentially happened was the government said it is politically expedient for us to have everybody in their own homes. We think it's a, something we can sell and get elected on. So they basically said to the banks, look, because we want this, we will guarantee the loans. And the bank said, what? The government said, no, we'll guarantee the loans. So now the banks, which used to be in the position of George Bailey, saying, is this person likely to pay back this money? That's a risk-reward calculation. Once the government comes in and agrees to pay off the bad loans, then the bank no longer can lose money. Now the bank's uh, motivation is not to, to write the best loans, but to write the most loans, because if you can write 100 loans and 99 of them are bad loans, if that had to come out of your pocket, you never would have done it. But if you if you write 100 loans and 99 of them are bad, you're going to get paid on the bad ones as well as the good ones. You just loan to everybody. So that's why the thing that's why the thing collapsed. And so what it really comes down to is nobody nobody owns money anymore. And I mean, I know that sounds like an absurd thing to say. People have lots of money, but nobody owns it nobody is responsible for it when when financial decisions are made by banks and investment firms and all the rest of it they're dealing with other people's money and it's not even really money that was one place being moved to another place it's money that's created out of thin air so when you have a situation that's set up for nothing but reward and no risk then you will make the kind of insane decisions that we've seen being made and you'll continue to make those decisions until the people who are making those decisions are personally responsible for the result of those decisions. When I say personally responsible for, I mean the owner of a bank who will lose the bank if he makes these kind of bad decisions and not have the government come in and bail it out so he can go on and do the same kind of behavior again and, and lose money with another three zeros attached to the end of it. Now, the president uh, insists that the uh, owners and investors in the bank are not going to be made whole. Um, the government is not going to bail them out. Only the depositors of the bank uh, will have their funds restored beyond the insured level of FDIC insurance. Um, and, but that remains to be seen, um, you know, whether that will actually happen. And, you know, I, my guess is that these three guys at the top of the food chain at Silicon Valley Bank land on their feet and go on to uh, accomplish great things in the future. Um, it, it's interesting because you're right, Bill, to point out um, what really happens when you take out a mortgage loan. We typically think of, of you know, we kind of kowtow our way into the bank lobby and hope they'll give us some money. We don't realize that when the transaction is all over, they've just added $500,000 to their balance sheet and we've subtracted $500,000 from ours. In other words, we have an account payable. They have an account receivable. An account receivable is an asset. An account payable is a liability. And so the bank gets the better end of that, even though we think, ooh, we got $500,000 from the bank to buy a house. That's not how the bank looks at it. <laughs> the bank got something worth much more to them than the house is worth to you. Um, you know, there's a line in, uh, in It's a Wonderful Life where... Um, Mr. Potter, who sits also on the board of the Bailey Savings and Loan, um, makes the remark about George Bailey that, uh, yeah, you shoot pool with a guy, he can come into your bank and borrow money. And, uh, and I thought when you were talking, Bill, I thought, yes, 
Because you shoot pool with a guy and you know a guy. You know his character, yeah. We're living in Potterville, <laughs> right. Scott. That's right. So if you shoot pool with a guy, you have some understanding about whether he plays fair or not. Is he uh, is he a gracious person? Is he a hard worker? Is he sloppy? Is you know you get all kinds of character reads from somebody. In fact, if you're a good pool player, you're constantly reading or any other game really, you're you're reading that. So uh, Mr. Potter, by the way, in case you were wondering, is the villain <laughs> in It's a Wonderful Life. So. Uh, he does not get it right, but George Bailey does. Um, you know, what this brings to mind, this whole crisis, and like I said, forgive the the uh, loose interpretation of the details because I wanted to give a broad brush approach to this to say that the complexities of human relationships and financial transactions are beyond the ability of any one entity to monitor, regulate, and control on a broad scale. You can set up some rules of the road, but as we've seen, the rules that were put in place uh, with the Dodd-Frank legislation in the wake of the 2008 meltdown um, didn't prevent anything from happening in the future. In fact, a future Congress came along and said, maybe we should loosen that up for smaller banks. And everybody said, yeah, yeah, there's no systemic risk. Or Representative Barney Frank, who was then, <laughs> had moved over to one of the banks, said, there's no systemic risk here to this little bank. Well, it turns out Silicon Valley Bank was like the 16th largest bank in the country, uh, due in large part to another government intervention, which was the shutdown stuff related to the COVID thing, which caused a surge in the value of uh, technology companies. And Silicon Valley Bank made two strategic decisions. One, they really required the people who wanted to do business with them to put almost all their money in that bank. So the companies were, were encouraged or required to invest uh, most of their funds in their bank. And the other strategic decision which was, was to go large on on government bonds and to invest in that because what's safer than government bonds? Well, as it turns out, they're Anything. safe up until the Federal Reserve <laughs> starts, <laughs> Scott, starts. The problem, the problem is SVB bought low and sold high. Yeah. Which in the well, bond market sucks. That's right. Well, and they didn't, they didn't want to sell. They got to a position where they had to because that boom of business that was because everybody was shut in started trickling away when everybody was no longer shut in. And so all of a sudden, it wasn't as hot a sector anymore. Now, the, the, the mistake we're just now making this weekend is we're saying we don't want any kind of uh, tragedy to befall. So not only are we going to make whole all the depositors in these banks, but we're encouraging other banks to come to the window for their own dose of money. And this is the way of the federal government uh, from a, the most positive interpretation is to say, oh, they're trying to rescue us all. The most negative kind of interpretation is to say, no, they're trying to take over the entire banking sector. Remember student loans? Student loans used to come from your local bank. Yep. When I got a student loan, it was backed by the U.S. government, but I had to go down to the local bank that I had a passbook savings account in and ask them for my student can, loan. Can I add one thing, Scott? I, I didn't mean to close yes. your, interrupt your close. Um, Not a problem. Is, I have no close. There is one example of something that is so different from the financial situation as we understand it. Now, this information is back when I was a limo driver, so early 80s, but I suspect it's probably still in play. And the, and the institution I'm talking about is Lloyd's of London. 
and I had a chance to, oh. to drive a person who was coming to L.A. to because to, Lloyd's of London was going to back insure the insurers in, in the event of a big earthquake that would take yeah. out the home insurance companies, and Lloyd's was going to back that up. And he told me something I thought was absolutely fascinating. He said, here's how Lloyd's of London works, or at least used to work. Lloyd's of London would approach people who had a large personal fortune, right? A personal fortune. And they would say to them, would you like to become a member of Lloyd's of London? And here's how the deal would work. If they, if they decided to sign on the line, then they would get a pro rata share of the, of the income that Lloyd's of London brings in through, through premiums. But the payout came from their personal fortunes. All of these people were individually on the hook for everything that they owned. All of their net worth was on the line. That's what Lloyd's of London was. It wasn't, a, it, or at least hopefully still is. It wasn't just a giant hunk of other people's money. It was a collection of rich people who got richer by, by being smart enough to make sure that the insurance went to the people who were likely to pay it back and so on. And so they had their entire personal fortune on the stake. And if, and if some major catastrophe hit and Lloyd's had to pay out everything at the same time, they'd all be bankrupt. And that kept Lloyd's running like an actual business. Personal responsibility. Um, I just want to sum up by, by saying this, and this should be common sense. Nobody should ever have to say this. But what got us into this mess will not get us out of it. And, you know, the old saying is, you know, the, the, a banker is, uh, is someone who pees on your leg and then tells you it's raining. You know, it's just like you don't, you don't look to the solution from the same people who caused the problem. And we have done this over and over and over again as a country. And at some point, we're going to have to wake up to the fact. I mean, I, I hate to see, you know, that Mitt Romney got a lot of uh, trash talk during his campaign for the presidency when he said corporations are people. Uh, let me quote Dave from the movie, Dave, I'm the government. <laughs> the government is us. So when you say, oh, well, don't worry, the government will bail you out. We're the government. And the government has no other source of income than from us. And so when you hear about the government giving away tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars to stabilize the economy, that has to come from somewhere. The government doesn't make anything. It takes. And we need to wake up to this fact. What got us into this mess is not going to get us out. And all the interpretation and the spin that you hear in the coming days on financial television programs and newspapers and just on the ordinary press, you need to think to yourself over and over again, what was the government's role in this? How did the government inspire this? How did the government react to this? And how is it possible that the government can correct this? For Bill Whittle and Stephen Green, I'm Scott Ott. Thanks to the members at BillWhittle.com for making Right Angle possible.